You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Well, hello, everyone. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and today we're going to continue our journey talking with successful business leaders and owners of the companies, people that have been there, done that. Uh, my guest today is a guy named John Sorakis. John, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Doug. Yeah, so uh, John and I have, uh, we've been on a journey together, I would say. We've, we've had some challenges getting this done. And uh, for those of you that might be fellow podcasters, you know some of the technical laments you get into and binds. Um, Last time John and I tried to do this, my uh, my landscape guys showed up right outside my office, and uh, we were having particular sound incursion. <laughs> yeah, super aggressive uh, blower and weed eater, man. Super aggressive, was, yeah. high power. I think he amped up the horsepower in that machine by about 3x or something. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, we're here now. So, John, as is a bit of a tradition on my show, uh, let's start with you telling us a little bit about your background and your journey to get to where you are right now. Yeah. So, uh, father owned a small construction company. He fired me. I was going to, to college at the time with this other guy, and he said, hey, you're going to school for marketing. Uh, you know, uh, I, I happen to own a marketing company with my father that we just started. So I went to work for them and it was more more traditional type stuff and it was in the medical space. So a lot of like uh, direct mail and, uh, you know, uh, phone call marketing, things like that, uh, newspaper ads, you know, that, that, that very traditional type stuff and started dabbling into more of the the digital there toward uh, toward the end. And that's that's really what excited me. Got really corporate there, like to a, like a brutal point because it, it grew to such a state where. They thought that was necessary. I, I I would still disagree. Decided to leave there in the pit of the recession, and at that point started uh, started an agency. And over uh, over the years, that was in like 2008. And over the years, did, done everything pretty much in the digital space. Everything from web dev, paid ads, even tried a little bit of affiliate marketing. And in 2018, we were doing so well uh, with one of our partners that we would send some of our web dev stuff. We decided to merge. And that's what we are today is uh, is Oyova. So that's been uh, about four years. Uh, and yeah, it's been a very successful uh, path in that space. And that's along great. the way, I've acquired some other small businesses and uh, own another one where uh, partners were involved and in, in, that, that's also in the healthcare space. So, yeah. Very interesting. Did um, Do you think uh, starting a business on the heels of the recession, was, was there a special chapter of learning you went through at, at that point? There was. Uh, looking back, I'm like, wow, that was such a stupid time to do it. But that is actually <laughs> the best time to do it because you're going to have to learn things in that type of pressure and just trying to separate people from their money. I mean, absolutely showing ultimate value when nobody wants to spend. And that that's just, that's carried with me all the way. So now I, I believe we're in a recession. I've gotten this debate with other people, but regardless. Um, and uh, I, I feel it's going to get a little bit deeper, but just communicating to my team that we have to do the three Ps, positive, persistent pressure. We have to be very aggressive 
and showing value to our clients. And we have to continually communicate with them to keep the business, get the business and keep driving it home to, to fight off competitors because they're going to be just as aggressive as well. So say those three P's again. Positive, persistent pressure. And what I mean by that is you got to be positive. You got to be enthusiastic when you apply. You can't come off needy from, you know, trying to sell from an empty cart where nobody wants to buy something. So you really got to bring the energy there. You got to be persistent. You can't look at what people are going to to view and say like, well, I'm being a nuisance or uh, I'm being annoying. You literally have to be persistent. There, there, there's going to be more of a mental block with people buying and purchasing things. And I'm not talking about selling things that people don't need. I'm talking about, all right, there's real value. Believe in what you're selling. So you got to be uh, persistent and you're going to have to apply that pressure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, that's a, that's an interesting lesson. And I, I think a lot of small business owners that I think of, you know, when it does come to sales per se, um, they, they generally, you know, make a face and recoil and they go, Ick, you know, I don't want to do that. Uh, Cause that's just not me. It's, it's not what I like to do, but reality is if you've got a, um, almost any kind of business, there's got to be some variety of business development that goes on. And whether that's, you know, very transactional selling or larger relationship selling, it's a, it's a, it's an ever present. It is. And, and I think a lot of people have been drunk on success of how easy things have been over the last 10 years, because selling in 2008 and 2009 and 2010 was very difficult. Um, so you, people are going to have to stretch. And But to anybody that's th listening to this, that's thinking about starting a business, start it now because you're going to know how bad it can get. And granted, the recession is different for different people. In 2008, it really affected a lot of construction and, and homes and whatnot, but it also trickled into tons of other places in the economy. So I, I would recommend, yeah, when, when it looks like it's the most bleak is potentially the, the best time to start it because you're going to be harder than steel uh, when it's all over. Yeah. For those that don't remember, the 2008 recession uh, was typified by, you know, national unemployment rate that was double digit. Depending on the city you lived in, it could have been as, as low as 8%, but it could have been as high as 18%. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the major metropolitan areas were hit really hard with that. Uh, there were a lot of, you're right, housing was kind of ground zero for the meltdown, but there were a lot of ancillary industries. Tech was hit hard then. And, yeah. Um, a lot of layoffs, a lot of people who had never lost a job were for the first time in their lives, 15, 20, 25 years into careers being let go. Yeah. Banking. Banking was hit pretty hard. Banking was well. hit very hard. Yep. Yeah. Yep. We're seeing a lot of the same uh, similarities with tech right now. I mean, it's just in banking. Banking layoffs uh, are happening as well. So just do the best you can with what you get and keep going. Right. So talk to us about your kind of sweet spot for um, the work you do and the kinds of companies that are ideal clients. 
I know it's ne never the fairest answer, especially when you're talking to somebody like, hey, who do you like to work with? Well, startups are fun, right? So I'll start at the full spectrum. So start startups are fun if they have a really cool concept and something that they believe in, right? Something that is so sellable that they could potentially even pick up the phone and, and do some cold calls. So those are always fun clients and even some that are getting into a competitive space. So what we'll help them with is uh, everything from developing their MVP in some cases, which is uh, application or some type of digital product and take that all the way through to to marketing that um and we work with everything in between all the way up to some enterprise clients where we've uh, developed software because that's part of that merger that i spoke about was you know at a solid digital agency had a partner that was doing uh, a lot of web development and software development and we decided to create an end-to-end -end solution and we can do that. So clients that were on that side that they were developing like ERP systems for and things like that, were able to sell digital marketing services and vice versa. Clients that we were doing digital marketing for, we were able to sell them uh, more uh, technology services. Interesting. So the way that I filter it, though, is anybody that respects marketing uh, and or, uh, you know, what technology can do and they like to pay their bills on time and they're good people are usually a good fit for us. And um, we just cost engineer budgets. We don't really have a minimum. Granted, there's minimums in there aligning to somebody's goals, right? Somebody comes to you and they want to build a skyscraper, but they only have, you know, like $7 and some lint in their pocket. It's really not going to make sense. But right. we'll tell you what you can do for that $7. Right, right. So I, I, this may be a wild tangent, but it's just top of mind for me because of some other clients I'm dealing with right now. Uh, talk to us about this phenomenon called user experience. I think when people are, and, and specifically, I, I'll, I'll help guide uh, clients I'm thinking of, they, they do have a service that is largely technology-based, and so they've got a longstanding website. And there are elements of it that require the end user to go ahead and, you know, be issued some credentials and, and log into a certain screen and then move on through the process um, digitally online. And there's some real concern. And, you know, when they get feedback, people say, I hate your system or, you know, I don't like your screens. And, you know, that's not intuitive. What should have been here is over there and blah, blah, blah. So... What do you guys run into in that UX space, as it's called? Yeah. So I think when you plan the design in a very thoughtful way, it makes things a lot easier. But yeah, when you have a product that is more expansive and there's lots of different features that are added and it's not as um, simple from the, the start, uh, user testing is something that we recommend for user experience. And when uh, when you get feedback, you don't always get the best tester. Let's be frank. Some, some of those people, it's like, did they stick their finger in a light socket and find out something tragic that morning? Because you get the reports and you're like, good Lord, I mean, what <laughs> yeah. happened to this individual? Like, we didn't like steal their money or, you know. Uh, you know, slap any of their children, but uh, but yeah, no, it's it's something that uh, we we recommend. The interesting thing is not all clients will will accept it. There's other ways to do it, right? Because you have it's it, it can be expensive. You have a body that's literally testing the way that a website performs. It's the equivalent to sending somebody in a store and then having them go and yeah, mystery shopper specific products. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and there's other ways, right? You have different types of reporting tools that you can see, and you can see where people are struggling and heat mapping and, and things. But 
um, user experience in the digital space is something that if you're developing a product or or a website, even if it's a brochure website, that should really be top of mind. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it does seem to be so touchy and it quickly de devolves into the, um, oh, I'll use the word and I'm not a professional marketer and I'm getting ready to demonstrate that for you. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it gets into the artsy realm and the creativity and it's like, okay, well, you want the button to be bigger and fatter. Uh, well, that's a personal preference, but, you know, I need to save some real estate, so we need to make it this size. And, you know, you get into the, all of those kind of discussions that really can drag a project out. They can. And I think it's better to to get a really solid plan up front and then figure out the things that are not going to be costly to iterate down the road, because that's where a huge saving is. So long as you have a solid foundation that meets the function, function should always come before the design or any of the aesthetics to beautify something. You can create something that's fantastic, that is going to deliver on the promises uh, to, to the user that you can change along the way. Yeah. And there are other things you can do so if there's, you know, let's say that, you know, one cohort wants the button to be bigger, for instance, um, you can test that. So you got A-B testing. That's one of the coolest things about technology. And you can see whether that's going to drive more clicks, create more uh, engagement, sales, or so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, is there a particular industry you do more work in than others? Every time I answer that question, it, it typically uh, goes another way. We do a lot in tech, right? So there, there's, you know, products, whether it's like, you know, uh, reemployment, um, you know, services, or we do stuff in education as well. On the marketing side, we even do, you know, things like some home services, even uh, attorneys, um, construction companies. Uh, yeah, so it ranges. I don't really have one specific, you know, niche that we focus on. We're like industry agnostic for the most part. Yeah, um, yeah. But we'll focus some of our outbound efforts in specific areas. And the odd thing, though, Doug, like we do that. And then it's like we get an inbound influx of like this other type of business. So we're which actually helped us during COVID. We were really well balanced. We didn't we didn't see a loss. We actually saw a 20 percent uh, increase over COVID because yeah. we were, you know, in a very hedged, safe, safe place. Well, I, I want to go back to the point we were making, the mention of uh, starting a business in the face of a recession. Uh, related to that is the idea that if your business already exists, this is not necessarily the time to take out the paring knife and start cutting a bunch of stuff that you need to do. In fact, I've told a number of my clients, I think it's time to double down. You know, mm -hmm. you need to decide what you really can advance during this time be, because a lot of your competition may well be doing just that. They may be taking that paring knife to the muscle in their organization, not just fat. And okay. and they're going to be paring down and cutting back and, and reducing service levels. And if if you can see your way clear to expand while you're doing that, you just may pick up some really powerful market share that you didn't have before. I agree. I think it's great advice. Yeah. A lot of people just they'll go straight to their their marketing and, and sales budgets and they're like, all right, we need to get rid of these people. I think those are potentially decisions you may have uh that that you why didn't you make those decisions before? But I think the the best thing to do is look at all right, whether it's going to be the money you're spending on something or the people that you have on your team. 
what is it that they are supposed to deliver, right? What does that return need to be? And be realistic with the return. Some people are always looking for like, you know, uh, 10, 15, 20X. Yeah, I mean, in, in, in some markets you can get that, but I mean, you can get between like four and six and be, you know, exceedingly happy. But just take a good look, just measure everything and measure your people. If you have somebody in there that's, and you're not seeing the work that's coming in and they're just sitting there and your customer support staff, is there something else that they could be doing that's gonna be a driver for the business? And if that person's not willing to do that, they might not be the best fit for what you're looking for right now, which makes that decision better. But I don't think people should just lay off their lay off their staff. I think should, yeah. they should really look at what they can do before they do that, because good people are hard to find. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in the in the recent market, it is so incredibly competitive. And you know, just for what it's worth, that's one of the anomalies in in the arguments of where we really are as an economy, because the employment market is not typified by some of the measures and stats that uh, usually go with recession, the definition of recession. So yeah. kind of waiting on that shoe to drop and see if, I mean, I, I, I do realize there've been some sectors that have made announcements about big cuts, but, and probably by the time this show hits the air, <laughs> that shoe will have dropped one way <laughs> or the other. And, you know, yeah. again, I'm going to look like a fool for even going down that <laughs> or climbing out on that limb, but that's Those okay. Predictions. It's my story and I'm sticking to yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with work from home. Yeah. We have, there's just, so at first there was all these reports that, oh, employees are happier and they, you know, commutes are down and work-life balance is in place, which I believe all those, uh, those things were, were correct. But then when you're away from something long enough, your priorities begin to shift and people look at anything that we're doing. It's a game. So if you can figure out how to game what it is that you're doing for a company, it's not necessarily you're trying to be nefarious with your employer, but you're going to figure out your work game to make it, you know, to, to get the most out of it for you, right? Whether it's going to be money or it's going to be work. And I think we're seeing a lot of that now. I think there's a lot of employees that have high integrity that are doing a fantastic job working from home. But I think there's also a number of people that do not have the personal personal management skills to be able to work from home. And depending on what their personal life is like, uh, whether it's kids running around or whether it's their partner, uh, uh, you know, husband or wife at home telling them like, hey, this is something that needs to be done. They don't know what those boundaries are. And I believe that's a lot of what we're seeing from a productivity standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, there, there are still company owners, leaders, and managers that are wrestling with what they really think about remote work and, you know, whether they, there's still those few holdouts that are trying to demand 100% return to the office or return to the facility. Yeah. And they're getting a lot of pushback still, you know, they're, they're hearing people vote with their feet. And, uh, you know, they're seeing attrition because of it, but I think most are settling in. I was talking to a, a big company yesterday and they said they've pretty well locked in on three days a week is the expectation for being in the office. And, and you can, in fact, pick which three, but it's gotta be three, you know, so. Nobody's uh, there Monday or Friday. <laughs> well, that's, that's, that's largely how it's unfolding. And that's a good thing actually. Because uh, what in in that you bring that up it is interesting that um, that was not necessarily in their lens of how they expected it to play out, but in fact that is it pretty much exactly how it's played out. 
So they focus a lot of their team meetings on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, and then, you know, worry about individual contributor type assignments on Monday and Friday. And, and they still, this particular company is one of those that they did install a, a type of monitoring technology in their desktops to see what people were trying to do. I mean, they're not snooping with live cameras or anything like that, but they can tell kind of how long you've been away from the login you were in and yeah and see i i don't want to so i haven't we haven't forced anybody to come back yet um uh and, and i hope we don't have to right um but I, I don't think they're voluntarily going to come in the office and i've heard these stories uh from others but oh yeah people just wanted to come back to work well do you have a policy where they need to work a few days a week yeah yeah we have it well they didn't really volunteer you you, you applied some pressure which i get um and i think it really does help i was speaking to an industrial designer today and for them to be able to touch the products and do those types of things for their design, uh, it, it's very helpful. But uh, I think we're going to see companies start with three days, and then I think it might creep up to four, and I think some might even try to to go for the full five. I think it's just going to depend on what works for your company. I personally like being in an office. I like the change of state. Like, all right, when I go home, I'm going to do a hell of a lot less than when I go to that other place. And um, I, I like the the, the collaborative uh, piece that that I've missed. So um, well, and in another dimension of that, there actually already have been studies uh, where some are reporting among the younger generations, they're already expressing an awareness of the loss of opportunity by being in the office and the opportunity to engage with senior leaders, more experienced staffers. Um, to get some of that mentoring and guidance and extra coaching that they don't get real well in a total remote environment. And, yeah. and it's, and, and I call that a consumer effect, you know, those frontline employees that are in that mode, you know, they're, they're the consumers of that opportunity and, and just in natural course of events if they're in the office they're getting that chance to see the big guy make his presentation and how did he do that and what did he do what did he say and uh, there's just a reality of that in a lot of businesses that that's how you advance you get exposed to that and you learn and nurture and you know grow in it and if you're relatively new in the business, sometimes you don't know what you don't know, but all of a sudden you're feeling like you're missing out. So it's that they are because FOMO effect. Yeah, they're siloed. They're they're isolated. Think about just all the. So, for instance, the I think there was a book called, or maybe it was a, an article like uh, you know, uh, peeing next to Ogilvy or something with David Ogilvy, right? So there's these these titans that if you're working for specific companies that you want to bump into those people because of what they they offer. And just thinking back through my career, yeah, there were there were other people that um, that I would never work closely with, but added a ton of value. And you get familiarity and you're like, hey, let's let's go grab a, you know, a drink or something or let's go do that. Or you're just kind of BSing with them by the the water cooler. So you now if you're you know working from home and i feel bad for this generation you're literally waiting for people to reach out to you from an upper level you have no random bump into somebody and oh hey you, you can't add value to somebody's presentation just walking yeah. by or so yeah. i think there's a lot of loss there 
Yeah, and it's that, yeah, yeah, I think about my own career path back many, many years ago when I was in banking and I had built up a, a particular unit and uh, one day one of the very senior officers of the bank walks in my office and plops himself down and says, I want to talk to you about a new job. And I'm like, okay. And uh, it's like, uh, I'm... I have a need in my division department. I, I want you to come over and be the head of it. And then I'm like, why, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and, and, and not to brag, but he's saying, well, I've heard about, and I've watched what you've done here. And that's the kind of stuff I need for this department as I, my vision for it. So basically I want you to come do again for me, what you've done over here. And, and, um, you know, I said, well, I have no idea what your product is about. You know, I, I don't know anything about your portfolio. And he said, that is the least of my worries. And he said, I, I have plenty of resources to teach you that. But what I don't have is what I understand you've done over here. And so there again, that's what I want you to do. Okay, I'll yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, if somehow I had made all that happen remotely, would I have had that same exposure for this very senior officer to show up and come searching? You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a magic lost and, you know, possibly it'll be figured out a different way. And, you know, 100 years you know, from now, they'll, they'll be telling a different story because it's morphed into that. But I know it's going to be a hard trudge to get there. And a whole generation, if it doesn't change, is going to be negatively affected. Yeah. Well, back to the entrepreneurial world a minute. Uh, from from your seat and for the kinds of clients that come your way, what, what do you think some of the biggest top of mind issues are that small business owners are wrestling with right now? I think the biggest uh, that that we see is a lot of people are trying to, to to just drive their numbers up. So on the marketing side, they're trying to get the most bang for their buck, and and it's our job to introduce them and give them the insights to to show them how they can do that, and of course execute on those. So I'd say that's probably top of mind. How can they get in more sales? Because we're hearing about a recession from them a lot too. Hey, numbers are down or. We need this, especially uh, when it when it comes to to new clients. Um, and then the other thing too that goes along with that is just how they everybody wants to save. They want to save as much as they can. So I believe whatever it is that somebody is selling, they just need to be really transparent and communicate the the value of it. All right, this is where that's going. We do it by hours. We're, we're time and materials, regardless of whatever we're going to do. We're just going to show them. All right, this is you know uh, how long it's going to take us, and this is what we need to to get the job done. So how do you traditionally try to build that value story that, or I guess, traditionally it's called the value proposition? What, what do you try to pack into that when you are presenting to a, a company for the first time? Try to understand where it is that they're coming from and just be really clear about what their goals are. And when we understand what it is that they're trying to achieve, because we're not going to take on a client if they want maintenance, right? So if they're just trying to replace something that's mediocre on their end and they just want like a stopgap that's not going to be a growth engine, then that's no interest to us. We want somebody that's going to grow. So aligning those goals with with their budget. And we we start that at the, the beginning conversation. All right. What is it that you want? Somebody, all right, we want to redevelop our website. All right, well, let's get into the why. Like, well, why do you want to redevelop your website? Well, we believe it's this. Okay, well, what data do you have to support that? Well, we have a, 
the board is saying that we need uh, a new website because uh, we need to redo our branding. Okay, well, where are you with your brand? Just like really dig in and understand what the goals are, and then you can apply what the value is to that. And ultimately, the value is going to come down to the effect. All right, what what is it that you're going to do that is going to have an outcome that is going to to make them happy? And another important thing we do is we don't believe in surprises. So if this is your expectation, we're going to do everything we can to meet that expectation. Because when it comes to business, there are rarely good surprises. <laughs> it's only bad surprises, right? So that's something that we also like to get clear yeah. uh, with our clients. Yeah. What about the companies that have, um, what's a nice word to describe this? Say the bad one. Do it. Uh, Your podcast. What about a company that's doing incredible work, but they've got a lousy story. They've got a lousy version of their own value proposition, and yet they're wanting to invest in doing some marketing. So if they have a, a, a lousy story, I'm trying to think because we used to, and sometimes we still do this, we'd sit down and it's kind of a braining exercise and you go through kind of like a Simon Sinek's why, like, why do you get up in the morning and you really want to get down to that? And some people are just like, well, I just want to make money or I want to do this. It's just like, well, that's, that's really not something we can sell there. So yeah. I, don't, I don't know if we're going to be a, a good fit. So I think if a company doesn't have uh, a very good story to tell, something that's really engaging about uh, one of the founders, then uh, or they have this really cool purpose, you just completely have to flip that onto their customers, and you have to tell the uh, the story from their customers' point of view, and you can do that in a myriad of ways. I mean, the old-fashioned way was just essentially testimonials, but you can pull those out into diff different you know customer journeys depending on whether you're going to use video, and then you can separate somebody in a digital space whether it's going to be on their site. Uh, reviews are another great way to do that, where you're continually highlighting those in case studies and all these things that you've done. Um, but yeah, like, I mean, the, you, you see it all the time where it's hard to sell certain businesses. For instance, like if you have like medical services, uh, and even banking, right. There's only so many stories you can tell there that are like, well, we care. Well, you better care because my grandmother's in the hospital. You know, I mean, it's like, that's table stakes and then banking, you know, oh, we're here for you. Oh yeah. We're going to take your money and do it in a better place. Yeah. Well, your interest rates don't show that. So there's all these like fun things that you have to do with it. You can even take um, like insurance companies, right? If you look at insurance companies, what is their communication strategy right now? It's complete randomness yeah. for the most part. Yeah. And it works. It's, it's engaging. And if you do enough of it, it's, it's going to be a little bit sticky. So uh, there's every client's a little bit different, but to answer your question, you gotta, you gotta dig into what their goals are, what the, what the customer, you know, or client needs to see and articulate in that in a, in a certain way that is, is going to be as honest as you possibly can. There's going to yeah. be a little bit of embellishing because we're marketers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as it should be. And, and I think as an owner, you know, a business owner, you, you hope your marketing guy can help you craft that story and put whatever uh, twist or uniqueness into it. And you touched on banking and boy, that, you know, I vividly remember the days sitting around the table in, in my banking career when the marketers were going, oh God, what are we got to do next? You know, this is, I mean, you know, you got a checking account, you got a loan product, uh, what else are we going to do? You know, and yeah. the bank where I was, we happened to have a, a shtick that we were, we were business bankers. We, our focus as a bank was on small business, small, medium, and just anything business. 
the way we portrayed that, we were walking around on job sites. You know, we're we're down at a shipyard, or we're out on an oil rig, or walking through a warehouse, and you know, talking to the owners, talking to the forklift drivers, and stuff like that. And well, that's that was a really radical departure from traditional banker in his you know white shirt and burgundy tie sitting behind a desk. And yeah. uh, that's uh, a it good worked. story. It worked. Yeah. It was it was it was a huge success and we were an incredibly profitable bank for doing that yeah that's a smart move and Good then it was kind of oh by the way i can open my kids savings account at the bank sure sure you can come in and do that yeah we can do that for you but you know uh, sure you know <laughs> not what we're looking for but yeah absolutely you yeah, know, we yeah. didn't lead with that by any means yeah. whereas the guy down the street you know the big bank down the street was clamoring for that you know yeah we sell Girl, Girl Scout cookies. Well, okay, nice. That's good. But <laughs> And then you found, uh, I mean, it, it's in a sense a niche, right? You went to the commercial side. I mean, it's it's a wide niche, which which is smart. And I think Seth Godin said it, where you, you have to niche till it hurts. And those are things that we'll look at to find a, a value proposition and also a differentiator. Differentiators, though, I mean, in, in banking and all these others, that's, that's what that was. It sounds like at the time, that was a differentiator. You guys yeah. focused on the, the commercial um it's that can be a very difficult and i think a lot of people will, will will struggle with that and that's where if you can't find one find a niche where it is different in that niche yeah yeah and i i the back to my original question one of the client companies i'm thinking of they um they they were predominantly a tech-based solution but it was custom for businesses and it was it was hard to spin a story about what exactly they did you know and what could they do and they did a lot of really cool stuff but it was it was very hard to put into a cohesive story that made any marketing sense so there's a, and i spent a time as a kind of a business advisor to them i said honestly, I don't think mass marketing is your answer. I, I think you've got to get really busy on relationship marketing. You know, you've got to do a whole lot more with the people who already know who you are and, you know, get them to write reviews, film some testimonials, you know, get, get some of that kind of stuff going on. Nine times out of 10, that's always going to be the best approach. If they don't have a good base from a relationship standpoint, then they're, they're not going to be able to grow to the level that they want. A lot of companies are going to get hung up there. For instance, any of those insurance companies or banks or whatever, that's going to start on the relationship side. The people that are just waiting for the business to always come to them, it's not, there's, there's, there's some exceptions to it, but it's not something that I would say is a, a growth-driven company. Yeah. But yeah, I think sure up every channel you can and you will be a dominator. When somebody tries to treat it like a buffet, where they're like, oh, well, relationship marketing, nah, that's not for us. We're, we're just going to do this. Then it's it's not going to be effective. Whether you're going to be Amazon at that level, they had relationship marketing. They were building strategic partnerships. They were looking for places that are going to funnel them business and then better pricing. I think that's an inherent, uh, it's an inherent component to any very successful company's uh, uh, mix, for sure. Putting that out. If you had to do it all over again, John, what would you do different? Oh, probably would have got a job in finance, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> no, I can promise you, you don't want to do that. Yeah, I don't think I would have made it. Um, 
Uh, if I if I had to do anything, I think I would have actually speaking. We were just speaking. I would have focused more on the relationship side um, at the start rather than all the inbound marketing and SEO and digital stuff at the beginning. Um, now, granted, we got really good at that, and I think it was very effective. But I believe we lost out on a lot of potential business. So I think continually networking and uh, joining peer groups and making sure that you're uh, you're making the right connections. That is something I, I don't think anybody should ever lose. If you're, you know, if you're you're resting on that, um, people are what companies are made of, and that's <laughs> what is going to bring you opportunities. I think you're you're setting yourself up in a substantially better position. So I think that's something I should have worked a lot better at uh, at the start. Now, one thing I want to insert here, you, uh, in addition to your core business, you organize and facilitate a mastermind, right? Yep. And so talk a little bit about that. Where did that come from and how typically does that run? Yeah, so it's actually where I met my business partner about 10 years ago. Um, we, uh, I, I met him in this group. I, I got a cold call from this guy one time and he said, hey, uh, I heard you're, you're decent at, the, at marketing. I got this little group together. I'd like you to join. So I was like, all right, cool. So I joined and then uh, they, uh, they would do just this yearly event and I would go to this yearly event and it, it, it was pretty cool. And there, uh, he handed it over to another guy that just, didn't want to do it. And he said, Hey, you seem to like this. Will you take it over? And that was also around like four, four or five years ago. And um, so I went ahead and took it over and I, I made some changes. So we still do the yearly event, which I think is uh, one of the biggest draws, but we also um, stay in contact via biweekly calls. And uh, we, we, you know, have a, a Slack channel or a Slack group rather. And it's for technologists, marketers, um, agency owners like myself. And the idea is that we have, it's a true mastermind. It's not necessarily just trying to come up with this group think. I love differentiation in there. Homogenization um, works in a lot of different other factors, but I think in business, it can stifle innovation. And um, yeah, so that's what we do. We, we just look for you know uh, business owners that are uh, tech focused, uh, marketers, uh, a lot of agency owners, and we try to help each other solve each other's problems. And then also a little bit act like a victim's group, you know, talk, you know, employees and, and, and about clients and, and things of that nature. But it's it's very successful. And there's a lot of happy people that uh, are, are in it. So if I may ask, uh, what, what's kind of the profile of the, the, uh, the company that is represented in that group? You know, the, the owner, where have they grown their business to? I'd say, I mean, there's been so many like purchases and mergers of some of these agencies in there. There's some that just started with a few hundred thousand dollars that are well into the the mid, uh, you know, millions. Um, there are some agencies in there that are, you know, uh, I'd say close to 90 million. Um, and then there's some other companies that hover right around the million. And then some people, and I know there's some other groups that have this philosophy that you need to put all these businesses that are the same size because they they have the same problems. There, there's some truth to that, but the downside of that is business cycle. And what I mean by that is a new business that starts out, they're going to be scrappy and they're going to take on risks that no business that's been successful for 10 years is going to take. And the things that they're going to introduce to that group can be jet fuel. For instance, like they're going to experiment with some AI things and they're going to do all these other little uh, crazy things. And of course, there's something to be learned from the um, the business that's been around for 5, 10, 15 years. 
So uh, we have a good mix. And I think what it comes down to there is just the moderation, right? Where you're just making sure that you're setting up good topics and you're not letting somebody hog it and also sharing from experience. Because if you're making $400,000 a year and you're going to brag about, you know, whatever your other career was, um, and you're going to try to, you know, uh, how would you manufacture advice? It's not going to be effective. So just be really gentle in shutting those people down and making sure that it's a, it's a successful group for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Well, John, I think this has been great. Uh, we're going to put a bow on it and wrap it up here. Uh, tell folks how they can get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more. Yeah, best place is to find me on LinkedIn. It's uh, last name is spelled T S O U R A K I S. First name's John J O N. Um, yeah, send me a request if you want to chat about something or you know partner up on a project. Join the Digital Mastermind group, which is digitalmastermind.com. Um, happy to help. Great, great, and we will have all that information in the show notes, folks. So uh, drop down and take a look at that if you want those links and get a hold of it. And one last time, John, thanks for sitting in. Doug, thank you so much, man. Happy we could do it. You know, no blowers or weed eaters this time. Yeah, that's right. We got all the noise abatement accomplished, so uh, it's a good deal. Well, folks, we are going to shut this down. I, I do want to remind you, we do have this episode over on YouTube and a channel by the same name, Leadership Powered by Common Sense. Hop over there and you can see the video of what we've just covered or Maybe you're going to see it for the first time. Who knows? But uh, share it with your friends. Leave us some comments. Give us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. For now, I'm going to sign off. Say goodbye. I hope to see you again real soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.